want women to know that this is their choice. They should not feel pressured. And unfortunately, there is a lot of pressure from families, from friends, from doctors. People just feel that women are going to walk through this, skate through this easily and end up with a new set of breasts that are better than ever before. And it's just not the, that way. It may end up that way, but mm -hmm. it's not an easy kind of thing. One of the most wonderful developments in the last couple of years has been among those women who choose not to have reconstruction. And it's a movement called Going Flat. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they have been totally empowered by their choice. I went back home, to, uh, interviewed a lot of plastic surgeons. They all told me this was exactly right. And I wrote a sample chapter called The Nipple, The Ultimate Challenge. And that's how I got a publisher and got my book published. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Powering Up, our cross-generational podcast about leadership, power, and gender. I'm Ann Doyle, author of Powering Up, How America's Women Achievers Become Leaders. And I'm Monica Doyle. I'm the millennial voice of this podcast and Ann's niece. Monica, you are just recovering from a concussion this first time I've seen you since <laughs> I heard this. What the heck happened, and how are you doing? Um, I'm doing a lot better. Today's kind of the first day I feel like I'm symptom-free, but uh, it was basically hockey, and without getting too much into the lingo, I was skating backwards. Um, I caught an edge, which is just kind of tripping over your own skates, and I fell backwards and hit the back <gasps> of my head. <laughs> Yikes. No helmet? I had my helmet on, but um, while we're talking about stuff like that today, I had an expired helmet on. It expired in 2010. Wow. So I have since bought a new helmet. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, and you know uh, you know that I'm a rider. I'm a horsewoman. And I took one of the, the worst fall of my life a couple of years ago mm -hmm. and landed, you know, went over the horse's head and landed right on Oof. my head and flipped. And uh, I had a helmet on, thank heavens, or I might be paralyzed today. Oof. But other than me being fine, they also say, get rid of that helmet. Mm -hmm. That's now a damaged helmet. Yep. It didn't look damaged, but they're like, nope, new helmet mm -hmm. immediately. So yep. helmets are incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, glad you're back. And uh, talking about health is very appropriate because our guest today is medical writer, reporter, and author Pat Anstead. She is in the Michigan Journalism Hall of Fame for her award-winning work over a 40-year career, which included many important life-changing and life-saving investigations related to women's health, particularly breast cancer. And her most recent book, Breast Cancer Surgery and Reconstruction, What's Right for You, is loaded with information about the choices women have when diagnosed with breast cancer, including choosing not to have surgery. There's widespread awareness of breast cancer, but women often say they make surgery choices without good information about their options. Some live to regret their decisions. Others feel pressured by their families, friends, and doctors to make certain decisions. Pat tells us that her book, which is one of only a few, very few on the topic, has given her the greatest sense of fulfillment in her career and what she calls her life's mission to educate women about the issue. Welcome, Pat. Thanks. It's wonderful to be here. I, uh, 
feel very strongly about this topic, uh, and I am uh, delighted to have an opportunity to discuss some of these important issues with you, which remain under-discussed. Everyone thinks, oh, breast cancer, there's so much awareness, but not of the surgery choices. Well, this uh, we're recording this during Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and I know you have spoken all over the country. You've led town hall and panel discussions, uh, and I understand you've often been surprised by what you found out there in terms of um, women who are facing breast cancer and what they know. And so what is the most important thing you want women to know when they're facing this, uh, some choices on this path? I want women to know that this is their choice. They should not feel pressured. And unfortunately, there is a lot of pressure from families, from friends, from doctors. People just feel that women are going to walk through this, skate through this easily, and end up with a new set of breasts that are better than ever before. And it's just not the, that way. It may end up that way, but mm -hmm. it's not an easy kind of thing. And the other kind of pressure women feel is simply to have reconstruction, even if they want to stay flat. And let's face it, staying flat, not having breast reconstruction, is the oldest choice of all. Mm. And as one woman told me, it needs to be on the menu. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit more about what you're finding in terms of the pressure that they're getting. Uh, who are they getting this pressure from? Well, a lot of times it's from people who don't understand that there is a lot entailed with the surgery, and it may not be a one-and-done and this One is the surgery. reconstruction you're talking Correct. about, right? Okay. Correct. And the other thing is, um, you know, there are 240,000 women a year who are diagnosed with breast cancer. There are only 100,000 who undergo reconstruction. Mm. That's because a lot of women are fine with lumpectomy. Mm -hmm. But we live in a day and age where so, much, so many people are pushing reconstruction or women are so afraid of cancer returning uh -huh. that women who are eligible for lumpectomy mm -hmm. often opt for double mastectomy with reconstruction. They go the whole way. Mm -hmm. And there needs to be more of a talk about all those choices. So this is a discussion that will remain as long as I live. And I just feel very committed that even though there are somewhat better resources than there were when I started reporting the book, um, it, the, the education is lagging. Women often are shocked by the diagnosis of mm -hmm. cancer, mm -hmm. and they just kind of want to move on and get on with their lives. Mm -hmm. And so, the, you know, if a doctor says, uh, here, I, I recommend this. you see this plastic surgeon, they don't put two and two together to understand that that plastic surgeon only may offer one choice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and I mean, I kind of hear you saying, number one, slow down. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, I mean, I, I remember that feeling. I have had um, breast cancer, although um, in some ways it was, it was zero stage in situ, which is practically nothing, you know. And, um, but I do remember going out to my car after having the mammogram and them saying, you know, we think there's something here. And just that stunned, oh my gosh, my life is about to change. What am I facing here? I remember that feeling. Yeah, it's, it's really can be very overwhelming. And so I always recommend that you take someone with you who's a good listener, 
Um, mm -hmm. and, and don't be afraid to ask questions. And this is true with all healthcare encounters, not just whether you have breast cancer or not, but um, don't be afraid to seek out someone who's comfortable with your questions. And if this is someone who isn't, then maybe you need to find another doctor. Mm -hmm. So with, um, with what you're mentioning about women sort of being pressured to have basically, you know, breast enhancement surgery from the sounds of it, um, do you think that this has a lot to do with the role that people sort of impress upon women in society? Yeah, and, and, and the fact that we still live in a very breast-conscious society. I mean, we, we, that's going to yeah. take a long time to get, yeah. get over that one. Mm -hmm. Maybe never. <laughs> yeah. like, like this idea that if you don't have breasts, you're not a woman somehow. Yeah, and, you know, the, the women might just feel very comfortable making whatever choice it is. And the other choice that people don't discuss is there are a lot of women who choose to stay one-breasted. Mm -hmm. That's totally okay with them. They're, and there are choices that you can make along the way. But um, I, I should also add there's often no need to rush through a reconstruction decision. A lot of women, three out of ten who end up having reconstruction, wait. You can wait a year or two. I mean, it's not, there's no expiration date. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, I read um, that you've done some, you've done a lot, a lot of writing about this, but one of the things that I read that was that um, bigger-breasted women have fewer options and poorer outcomes, and plus they're often steered toward implant reconstruction, even if they want to re remain flat. Uh, what have you found about that, and why is that? That was one of the first facts that I learned that turned me on to this, the importance of this issue and writing about it. It was one of those aha moments mm -hmm. where I said, women need to know this. And I had written about breast cancer for years, yep. but had never read until a friend, a big, bigger bus, busted woman friend with breast cancer told me, I bet you bet you don't know this. And sure enough, I didn't. Mm -hmm. Now, that's changed a little because there are more doctors performing um, breast reconstruction on larger-breasted women. But the fact remains, the larger you are, the harder it is to make it all work easily in one step. You mean if they want to be reconstructed to exactly how they were before. Is that what you're saying? In any way. They, I mean, because if you, even if you're getting smaller, it involves mm -hmm. um, still um, either getting the right size implant for your body, because mm -hmm. the larger you are, not just how big busted you are, but the larger you are, the more there, consideration there is to finding the right mm -hmm. either implants or obtaining enough tissue mm -hmm. from some part of your body to create a breast. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, there are improvements, but the women who are big in size or big-chested have a tougher road. Wow, wow. And that's not a reality everyone knows. Yeah. Well, and so one thing that I kind of wanted to say real quick for any male allies listening to this is that Breasts, especially if you have large breasts, are not exactly easy to deal with. Um, many of my friends who are larger breasted have, through their entire lives, expressed a frustration at it. So this idea that um, in the occasion of breast cancer needing a mastectomy or a lumpectomy like that, 
you would probably almost feel a little bit freed being a little bit relieved of some of this bulk, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so the idea that larger breasts for women in particular are being pressured into this is pretty sad to me because it seems like it should be almost a relief. Yeah, I'm never, I'm not sure I've ever heard anyone call it a relief, but not, not um, the cancer but I, part, the, but, the other part, right? But but uh, in fact, uh, <laughs> there are important considerations that women need to know more about, and mm -hmm. so it's 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 all about educating women about their choices. Mm -hmm. What have you found, um, if anything, different about U.S. culture? and perhaps sort of how this is uh, the mindset or the approach in other parts of the world. I mean, I'm sure you have looked at some of that. I think some of the research that you mentioned in terms of the number of women having it was, U those were U.S. figures, is that correct? Correct. Um, they're still, uh, it, it's even worse in a lot of countries, the breast consciousness, the big big breast phenomenon. It's worse than the U.S.? In some places, yes. But um, the other thing is that Europe, in particular, led the way in some developments about breast cancer, both diagnosis, breast reconstruction, and most recently, Europe led the way in the withdrawal of a type of implant known as textured implants that were linked to a certain type of cancer, lymphoma. Mm -hmm. And what happened is these, the textured implant, as opposed to something that's smooth, um, has a what is called a cross hatching along the outer rim of the implant, and that cross hatching somehow attracted cells that then would f kind of drift off and ended up causing lymphoma. And Yikes. about one percent of women with textured implants ended up with these kinds of um, cancers. And Europe led the way in pulling those, uh, getting those implants off the market. And the FDA just asked. Allergan, the manufacturer of textured implants in America, to do so, and they've been withdrawn. But we were late on withdrawal of those implants, and it caused quite a bit of controversy here in the United States this year. Well, I know that you have covered some of the most important health stories uh, over the last few decades related to women, and that whole, this implant controversy was just one of them. The, the fact that what you just mentioned about the textured type of implant. Uh, is that the only piece of it? Because I remember when women were being advised to take these things out and they were leaking and all of that. What can you share about that? And is that problem behind us? Um, it, it, that's a great question. Um, I covered the breast implant controversy in the 90s. In 1991, the FDA pulled breast, all, all silicone breast implants off the market. They remained off the market for about, uh, over 10 years. And women could only get saline implants unless uh, they were agreed to be studied and followed very closely. Um, and what came out in these hearings on textured implants is that the follow-up on all those women who did get um, silicone implants who were supposed to be closely followed weren't closely followed. <laughs> they, and that it, didn't surprise the you, was, did it? The was pitiful. Uh -huh. What did we learn? We didn't learn enough from this big, 
you know, controversy that occurred, mm-hmm. you know, all these years ago. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's that's really bad. That's that's our government should and our medical professions should do much better. Sure, women move; they may not want to follow up, but there's got to be a better answer, especially when, we, when health is involved. Exactly. So. Um, you know, we've learned some, mm-hmm. but we haven't learned anywhere enough. And I think that's that's such a terrific example of how um, we just kind of assume this is all going to happen, and it doesn't. So uh, what the other takeaway here, you know, a lot of us have devices of all kinds, knee implants, hip implants, mm-hmm. you name it. Find out what kind you have. Mm-hmm. Know that if you want to go back, if something's not working right, you know what you have. You can do some internet research. It, it, it's it's amazing how many people don't know mm-hmm. the half of this. You yeah. know, they just trust the doctors, exactly. trust the specialists. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't want to get too off topic here, but I had a total knee replacement. I'm one of one in four people who failed total knee replacement. It didn't work for me at all. And I had to find out it wasn't in my medical records. I, I, I had not asked. I should have known better. Wow. And Even um, you. It, well, it, you know, I think I just wanted to be pain-free. Yeah. You know? I All mean, the and promises. It, and I think it's a good, it's a good um, corollary to breast reconstruction and breast surgery because you really kind of want to move on. And yeah. so did I. I had, tri- I had tried 10 years of just about everything. So um, my advice is, if you're going to have a medical device, know what you're getting. Ask the doctor, you know, what are there other types of implants and how would you compare them? Yeah, mm-hmm. why are you recommending this one? Yep. And um, if if it doesn't work out, you have at least a place to start um, finding out more answers. Well, and is there any advantages to having reconstruction surgery other than cosmetic? Well, um, there... A lot of women feel that if they're balanced on both sides, that they're, it just m- makes them feel better mentally, but also physically. That mm-hmm. there's, you know, sometimes the women who are one-breasted, they'll admit, you know, they, they oh, have... the balance of your body. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. So there's that. There's a symmetry issue, well, not just in dress, but also in posture mm-hmm. and, and a few things like that. But overall... Um, I don't think it's a big difference. Well, and we've talked a lot about um, breast implants and reconstructive surgery, but what about the women who choose not to have that? That was sort of what I was talking about when I said it seems like it would be a relief to not have, to to be reconstructed, to just remain flat. Yeah. So what what happens to the women who choose not to? I, there's a, one of the most wonderful developments in the last couple of years has been among those women who choose not to to have reconstruction, and it's a movement called Going Flat. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they have been totally empowered by their choice. They posed topless for a New York yep. Times magazine I've cover. I've seen those. I love those. Um, oh. And their, their testimony mm-hmm. has given women um, a, a greater sense of... Uh, well-being about the choice that many have already made to either stay flat on totally flat or one-breasted and it's it's just been the I think one of the most important developments far more than any developments 
in plastic surgery. Mm -hmm. um, and I applaud those women. I think that it's wonderful. Um, the other thing, you know, that you find out, and I, I'm going to move to another issue, which probably is going to surprise both of you, but there are a lot of women, they go through breast reconstruction, but getting nipples added is a, another surgery. Oh. Plus, mm -hmm. it, wow. it's a tough thing to do properly, which is why a lot of women go for t tattoos. The nipples that are created surgically may um, sh shrink mm -hmm. over two or three years quickly. Uh, they, the inks that are used in medical offices aren't the same quality as those by commercial tattoo artists. Hence, there was, there's been this big development of breast tattooing among co commercial artists. Anyway, and then there are all these women who never bothered with any of that. They just they get reconstruction, but they don't have the nipples made, and they look, they're like two pancakes, and they're fine with it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> they they're just fine with it, and good for them. Mm -hmm. You know, they just don't want more surgery. Uh, it's not that important. You know, and people need to acknowledge that there are all these different choices. I, I mean, most people don't know about it, and they think you got to be kidding me. You don't have nipples? Well, they don't. And um, it, this uh, this was one of the other early revelations for me. I did not know that a lot of women went through reconstruction and ended up with no nipples. Mm -hmm. And I went with the friend, the big busted friend, who told me there were poorer choices and f worse outcomes for bigger busted women. I went with her and her mother on a road trip so that my friend could get her breast tattooed by the leading breast tattoo artist in America, Vinnie Myers in suburban Baltimore, Maryland. Mm -hmm talked my ear off. <laughs> I went back home, to, uh, interviewed a lot of plastic surgeons. They all told me this was exactly right. And I wrote a sample chapter called The Nipple, The Ultimate Challenge. And that's how I got a publisher and got my book published. That chapter. <laughs> and I always say, <laughs> the nipple is what got me on this trip here. <laughs> but, you know, you mentioned that there's a difference in the quality standards of the ink being used and the way I heard it sounded as if the quality of the ink is better with in the commercial tattoo totally. parlors than in the medical. As well as the technique. So in, in, the, in medical offices, a nurse who may or may not have had much training in breast tattooing does the tattooing. And is this tattooing like a nipple? Is that what yeah. they're tattooing? Yeah, so even if you surgically recreate a nipple, which you can do with little these little... Uh, uh, skin tags that stick off your body. It's amazing what they <laughs> oh, can, can make a mine. nipple out of. <laughs> yeah. But um, then they, to make it look like a nipple, they still will use light tattooing on it. Oh. Pigmentation. Exactly. But the medical grade inks used in many medical offices aren't the same quality and then these poor people don't. quality. They're yeah. exactly. They're poor well. quality and they don't have the same experience. So some of the leading um, plastic surgery practices in America now have acknowledged in medical journals that they send some of their patients or many of their patients to the breast tattoo artists who can do a better job. Well, and if you think about it, it's like the tattoo artist certainly can't create a nipple, but the nurse hasn't gone to art school, hasn't practiced color theory. I went through several classes on color theory. 
And, you know, it's things that people who go through nursing school don't really acknowledge that you can use greens to create skin pigmentation and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah. And I've actually seen some videos of a couple of tattoo parlors that have offered this tattooing of the nipple for free to breast surgery for survivors mm. so mm-hmm. or breast cancer survivors. Some of the nurses doing this in medical offices now have got more training than they, than they used to get five or ten years ago. I mean, let's face it, you know, it just doesn't stack up to always the same experience and quality you find with a um, commercial tattoo artist. Mm -hmm. You know, Pat, I mean, we've been talking specifically about your expertise and passion about this issue in terms of women and breast cancer and reconstruction and all of that. But, I mean, you have been a journalist, a medical writer, uh, 40-year career, 20 years, uh, 22 years maybe, uh, as the medical writer for the Detroit Free Press, I'm sure you are aware of some of the coverage uh, that's out there right now, including this new book uh, called Doing Harm, The Truth About Bad Medicine and Lazy Science, uh, Leave Women Dismissed, Misdiagnosed, and Sick. Do you agree that there is a serious issue in terms of really sexism in medicine today beyond these issues you've raised in terms of breast cancer? I think it's really true, and I think it's particularly true in certain specialties. I ran into it in uh, in orthopedic surgery. I, when I went to get my medical records about my knee, I found in one of my me- medical records that I was described as, get this, a high demand patient. <laughs> And wow. all I had done... And you were very proud of yourself for I that, was right, so Pat? mad. I'll never go back to that guy again. <gasps> and he was nice to me, but he that's what he called wow. me. And, you know, I think it's actually stigmatizing. And, you know, in case I ever sued him or something, because, oh, she was a high-demand patient. Wow. And all I did was tell him that I felt my total knee replacement by another doctor had not worked, and I wanted to see if he... If there was anything else he could suggest, that makes me a high-demand patient. Well, you know what I say to you, doctor? <laughs> you know, I'm, yeah. I mean, and so certain specialties are worse. I think this is changing in plastic surgery. I think, there, first of all, there are far more women entering a lot of the medical professions. Yeah. But still and most of the specialists are men is that, what that's, I'm reading. That's exactly what I'm saying. In certain specialties, you're going to run into this. And that's why... It's really important um, to do a little homework if you can. Bring someone with you. Um, I I really feel that you know you have a right sometimes to say um, to someone's boss, "This person wrote me off." Mm-hmm. Um, regarding my knee, I went to the vice president of plastic surge uh, of of orthopedic surgery for the health system mm-hmm. where I went for my surgery. Mm-hmm. And I complained to her about this doctor. Yeah. And you might find this interesting. All, my goal was to return to sing, senior doubles tennis. <laughs> and um, all oh, the surgeon thought it was wonderful. His team thought it was wonderful. They're all cheering me on. Three months later, I went back to him. I said, you know, I'm having these problems. Do you think I'll ever run again? And he just stared at me. And I said, doctor, don't you, can, you can't answer my question. And he said, well, most people your age don't expect to run after total knee replacement. Wow. And I said, Doctor, you had told me and thought it was wonderful. I wanted to go back to senior doubles tennis. And we do run uh-huh. for the ball in senior doubles tennis. Uh-huh. You know? yeah, exactly. So, I mean, and that's, and I don't, 
No, if they'd say that to a man. I, I right. really wonder. I doubt it. So I actually had to go back to this guy one more time, and this time I brought my friend Joanne Gerstner, <laughs> who is a very formidable-looking woman, <laughs> more formidable-looking than I am, I think. She didn't say a word, but the two of us together, I mean, I, I felt Gang I finally <laughs> got yeah. my... Bring a formidable <laughs> yeah. Gang up friend, on him if right. you got yeah. to. It's yeah. your body. How dare he tell you that you're high demand? It's your body. You want it to return to functioning order, and he's writing you off as like, oh, well, I think the surgery was fine. Well, that's great and all, but it's my knee. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yes, uh, this does still come up way too often in medicine. And uh, just if, if particularly seeing a specialist, bring someone along and find someone else if you don't like where the whole conversation is going or you feel you're ignored. Well, and I think that's an option that a lot of people, like not just women, but people in general don't realize they have is you don't have to keep seeing that doctor. If he's making you uncomfortable, if they are making you uncomfortable, if they're making you feel like you're not being treated well, you can find another doctor. You know, it's like shopping for a car. You're not just going to buy the first car that you get. You're going to find the one that works for you and your lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. I actually said to my, I have a, my primary care doctor retired, and I said to the new man, um, I just, can I tell you something about myself? <laughs> and he said, sure. And I said, well, I just want to tell you, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. And I said, it's because I was a medical writer for 22 years. Um, and I, I just sometimes feel that... Um, when I ask questions, doctors are bothered by it, and I need a doctor who's not bothered by it. Mm -hmm. And I guess if you're still with that doctor, the response was pretty good. It was. Yeah. That's good. You know, it is not going to surprise Monica to know that my mother and her grandmother was most definitely a high-demand patient. <laughs> and uh, I really have memories from being a kid, you know, in doctor's offices when, these, when my mother was asking some very tough questions mm -hmm. and the doctors were very uncomfortable about it. But that brings me really to um, just asking you a little bit more about you in terms of, you know, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, your background, maybe how you grew up that perhaps, uh, as you look back on it, were important uh, parts of your foundation that allowed you to um, become a very, very successful investigative reporter and important voice uh, for health and women. Well, um, I'm from a big family, six kids. I'm the oldest daughter, and uh, I... Uh, always uh, was encouraged to do my very best. My parents didn't have a lot of time for me, but they always encouraged me to do my very best. So um, that, first and foremost, was uh, one of the motivating things for me. Um, and I uh, have three kids, and I try to do the same with them. I always you know, the sky's the limit. You go for whatever you want to do. Um, in um, high school, um, I early uh, early on, I had been told actually in middle, in seventh or eighth, eighth grade, that I was a good writer. And I remember it being the only compliment I had ever gotten from a teacher. Mm -hmm. So I pursued writing. And in high school, I end up on the school newspaper. And I just loved journalism. And I, uh, when I went to Michigan State, 
I applied for the secretarial job answering the phones my freshman year, and the next semester was promoted to a reporting position. At the paper. At, at, the, at, the, at the college newspaper, the Michigan State News. And we used to have all these students who'd come in and say, oh, I don't have time to work here. And those of us who work there, often with another job at that, would just shake our heads. All right, that's the choice you're going to make, but you're never going to get experience like this. So I always tell people, make sure to get practical experience if you're uh, in college, um, because that's what really helped me leapfrog from the Michigan State News circulation 60,000 at the time to a job in Chicago with one of the four dailies. And um, that, um, the other thing I want to, advice I want to pass along is, th is this. I was never afraid to go up and talk to the people in the room, the editors and so on, who most impressed me. Mm -hmm. And I had so, so many wonderful people who ended up, before we came up with the term mentor, they mentored me. Mm -hmm. They took time with me. They answered my questions. I had one boss who used to actually talk to me after I'd have an interview, and he'd say simply, what happened? Now, when you think about it, because you have a background in journalism, that never happens. No one ever bothers to say what happened. And, right. you know, talk it over with someone. Put, bounce your ideas and what happened off of somebody, even if it's not someone in your newsroom or in your office or whatever. Find someone you can have an intellectual conversation with to take you to another level of questioning or to reinforcement or whatever it is. And that's... That makes you curious, mm -hmm. or more curious. So, so do that. Um, the other thing is mentor others, find time for others, mm -hmm. um, give back. Um, mm -hmm. I, I am seventy-two years old, and I still learn from younger people. Yep. So I still feel very passionate about passing on whatever I can to those who are younger than than I am. And recently. I uh, decided to volunteer for the Mercy Education Project, which is a tutoring program for girls and adult women in southwest Detroit. It was founded by the nun who taught me journalism. <laughs> and when they asked me how I got there, I said, Kenise sent me. Her name was Kenise Johnson. Mm -hmm. And you know what? It's been, it's fulfilling stuff like that that keeps me going. Yeah. Well, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, I know that you have a website. Uh, so how can they reach you in terms of more information about this great work you're doing and possibly to have you come and speak or lead a panel discussion or town hall? Well, thanks for asking that. So I have a website, bcsurgerystories.com, BC as in breast cancer, surgery, stories, all smushed together, .com. <laughs> And you can find me through there. There's also a lot of free information up there. What I've done, I'm not here just to sell books, <laughs> hardly at all. Um, so I've condensed a lot of the information in the book into like one-page take-home messages and things like that. I also created um, about a dozen videos on YouTube. And if you go to YouTube okay. and you put in uh, uh, breast cancer surgery and reconstruction, you should be able to find them. Or if you put in my full name, Patricia Anstett, A-N-S-T-E-T-T, -T. you will find these. And one of them is called Five Women, Five Choices. Mm. And it will walk 
women through the, the, all the choices, staying flat or having various mm -hmm. types of reconstruction. It will introduce you to some of the best doctors here in Metro Detroit. And it's um, not only for individuals facing surgery decisions, but it's, re it's a resource for breast cancer groups who might be looking for a material then, and then have discussions about some of the topics that are raised. Well, uh, and Pat, our podcast focuses on leadership, power, and gender. And would you share some of what you've learned about claiming your power and speaking up, particularly regarding our health, when we often feel at our most vulnerable? Well, mm. I th think that too many people aren't familiar with the possible uh, side effects the complications, the things that can go wrong, and more people need to speak up about all these things. I, I think I have done this on my own Facebook page about my knee, and I cannot tell you how many people have thanked me for saying, oh, I didn't know that, or gee, I feel better now. You know. And one guy said about his knee, it sure doesn't feel like new. You know. And I mean, even just that, it might be better. I mean, there are a lot of people who are are improved by these surgeries, mm -hmm. but not everyone is. I mean, do you know that one in four people fail back surgery? Think of all the people, how many people have back surgery. Mm -hmm. And so I, the more that people speak up, the more that people will have information to make good choices. And don't be afraid to ask questions, even of those specialists, right? And being a high-demand patient. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, and you're a woman, no matter if you have one breast, two breasts, big breasts, small breasts. Right. Nobody else gets to define your womanity. Only you do. That's right. I there wanted to add, by the way, that one of the most wonderful things about the book that I did is it's now in many pub public libraries, and all you have to do is ask for the book, and even if they don't stock it, they can get it for you through the lending library provisions that most libraries now have. So. Um, it's easy to get a copy of the book if you want to see one. All right. Well, thank you, Pat Anstett, uh, Hall of Fame journalist, a uh, passionate and expert advocate for women's health, and an author of this important book, Breast Cancer Surgery and Reconstruction, What's Right for You? Um, you have made it a life mission, Pat, for as long as you live to empower women and um, around all the issues around their health. So thank you for everything you've done. Uh, congratulations for everything you've achieved, and uh, keep it up because we absolutely need you. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure to be here with two people who totally get it. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> well, I'm Ann Doyle. And I'm Monica Doyle. So let's, let's all, all go, go power up. <laughs>